Welcome to the Candid Divorce Lawyer Podcast, brought to you by Trithowans. Family law can be an emotional roller coaster, a mix of sadness, anger, hope, and worry. The Candid Divorce Lawyer explores topics from marriage to divorce and everything in between. This podcast does not constitute legal advice and is for informational purposes only. If you're looking for legal advice, please do not hesitate to get in touch with us via the details in our bio. Hello, thanks for joining us for this episode of The Candid Divorce Lawyer. I'm Amy Trench and I'm joined by Helen Clarkson. We're both associates in the family team at Trithowans. Today, we'll be looking at the topic, will my contributions be taken into account upon divorce? We're talking about the situation specifically in divorce cases. So we're not talking about unmarried couples separating because the law is quite different in those sort of scenarios. Before we talk about contributions as a specific concept, it's important to explain that the court will be considering contributions within the context of other legal principles. So the court will be looking at all the circumstances of the case. They'll be looking at the welfare of children first, and they will like to start from the point of equality. So within these general principles, the court have various factors that they should take into account when they're trying to determine how to divide assets in a divorce. And one of those factors is to consider contributions made by each party. But this is just one factor, and there are many others, which Helen's going to now explain to you. Hi, yes. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for the intro. So Amy's quite right. When the court's considering how to divide financial assets upon divorce, there are many factors that are taken into account. So just to name a few of them, I won't go into detail here because the purpose of today's podcast is just to focus on the contributions factor. So just to give a quick outline, the capital and income resources available to the parties That could mean things like capital, so that would be any property or savings or investments that are available, and income, so that is what it says on the tin, any income that you receive, whether that's benefits and how divorce might impact on those, and any income from paid employment or in self-employed work. Details of the financial needs of the parties, so this includes the standard of living, but Most of the time when we are trying to divide one pot of money, the marital pot between two parties, there is often not enough in the pot to take this consideration into account. However, if we find that there is enough money to, let's say, house both parties and provide them with enough income to live, then we can take into account the standard of living previously enjoyed during the marriage and, if possible, try to meet that moving forward. The age of the parties and the length of the marriage is also a factor that needs to be taken into account. So the reason this is a factor is that let's say there's an older couple that unfortunately are separating and divorcing, then what we would need to do is consider how their income is going to be affected on the divorce. And usually we'd be looking to to keep to an, an equal division of asset and income moving forward. However, younger couples, it's expected that they will be able to hopefully work in the future, increase their earning capacity, increase their pension pots, might meet a new partner. So with younger couples, there there could be a bit more of a a division in one party's favour. 
whether that's due to contributions, which we'll talk about a bit more in a while. Also, if there's any disabilities in the family, whether that's a child or one of the spouses, that would definitely need to be taken into account so that we can level up the finances, whether there's additional costs for maybe the care of a disabled party or child, or whether one of the parties is actually being the main caregiver for a disabled child. So there's factors that need to be considered if there's any disabilities in the family. The court will also consider additional factors such as the conduct of the party. We get asked this one quite a lot as well. Often if there's been an adultery carried out, so one person's had an affair, which has caused to the the marriage breakup. However, we must reiterate here, it is a financial conduct point that needs to be addressed. So this is if somebody has been frivolous with money or more than that. It's a very hard factor to prove. So it's not one that we often use, but it can be used. For example, if somebody has been gambling the, the marital pot away. Last couple of points, any benefit either party will lose as a result of the divorce. So this could be benefits under their spouse's pension, which if they're no longer classed as a spouse, they won't get. So it's always worth looking into to what rights you have as a spouse. Taking us back to the question for today's podcast, the respective contributions of each party. So back to you, Amy, if you could just give us a bit more detail about what we actually mean by contributions. Yeah, absolutely. So it's important to distinguish between what are matrimonial assets and what are non-matrimonial assets. Firstly, because the court are going to be looking to divide and share up matrimonial assets. So we identify all assets first, whether they're matrimonial or non-matrimonial, and then look to how we can divide them. So matrimonial assets will be assets or wealth that's generated during the marriage. And that will be by the efforts of either both parties or each party individually. If it's happened during the marriage, it doesn't necessarily stay in that person's sole name. That's different to non-matrimonial assets. So non-matrimonial asset may include either a pre-acquired asset or a post-acquired asset. So pre-acquired assets shouldn't be intermingled. So if you had a property, for example, or a business that you owned before the marriage, and then you married, if you kept it entirely separate, you you may be able to argue that that was a pre-acquired asset that then shouldn't subsequently be shared. There's other things. So if you contributed to a pension prior to your marriage, it's very limited now, but it is possible that you can argue that those contributions should be discounted. We could do a whole podcast on that segment alone, but it it, it is a possible argument you can raise. And then post- yeah, post acquired assets would be assets generated or received after the party separated. So you could separate and then receive an inheritance or maybe even win the lottery. I wish. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. I'm sure a lot of our clients wish that too. But if it's happened post separation, you could argue that's a non-matrimonial asset and therefore shouldn't fall into the assets that the court are looking at. In most of the cases we deal with, the reality is that they will be considered indirectly because they are available to, to meet need, even if they're not available to be shared. But again, that could be another podcast. It's also possible that something that's a product of continuation of the endeavours already undertaken during the marriage can become non-matrimonial if a considerable time period has lapsed, say sometimes as much as three years. So if, for example, you were running a business, but post-separation, that business went global. So during the marriage, you were running the business, but something happened post-separation that changed that asset. You can try to argue that 
part of that asset may be non-matrimonial as long as some time period has lapsed. So there's two different types of assets, matrimonial and non-matrimonial assets. And that's what we're trying to, the courts are trying to determine because sometimes there's disagreement as to what falls into each category. And then when we're looking at contributions, Helen's going to talk to us a little bit about the different types of contribution because we're not just talking about financial. I appreciate most people would think we're talking about financial contributions, but that's not the case. Is it, Helen? No, that's quite right, Amy. I mean, we are talking about contributions to the marriage and to, you know, this family unit and and the circumstances of this this one uh, family. So when looking at contributions, we can actually look at at monetary and non-monetary. So this is a question that we're often asked. For example, it could be the breadwinner saying, well, hang on a minute, I've been working 50 hour weeks to provide for this family financially to pay the mortgage, which is now paid off or it's nearly paid off or whatever the case may be. And I've worked really long hours. I've really, I've really worked for this. However, on the other side of that, there is often, not always, and, you know, in in newer times, quite often both parents work, but often there is a a homemaker who the decision has been made between the spouses at some point that one parent will take a bit of a backseat from their career and focus on looking after the children and the home, whatever the case may be. Every case is different. But in the eyes of the law, there was a case, we won't bore you too much with the case law that that we know, but you don't often need to know too much about. But there was a case uh, in 2001, which went all the way to the House of Lords, called the case of, of White and White, where a decision was made that there must be no discrimination between monetary and non-monetary contributions to the marriage. So there should be no bias in favour of, of the breadwinner at the expense of a homemaker. So what that means in practice to us when we're trying to negotiate who should take what away from the, the, the marriage financially is that the starting point for distribution of marital assets, which Amy's just kindly defined for us, is this 50-50 equality division to begin with and then take into account the other factors that that we've just discussed. And this is a really important one. The court is not bothered about, you know, how much money one party's put in against how many times, you know, this other parent has taken the children to football practice or whatever it might be. You know, you're a family unit and therefore the homemaker's contribution is equal to a breadmaker's contribution in the eyes of the family law. Absolutely. So there are, however, you can argue special contributions. And I wanted to give a specific example about this because I appreciate a lot of clients that come to see us would consider their contributions as special. But what we're talking about here and what the judge would be looking at is whether a contribution is exceptional. So that requires him to look at the nature of the contribution and whether it derives from an exceptional individual quality. It's all underlined by this principle that it's extremely important to avoid discrimination against the homemaker. But to to give you an example of a special contribution, there was a case of Cooper in 2014 where the party's wealth was six billion US dollars. Wow. Husband (laughs) was a highly successful hedge fund manager. And when the couple separated, their personal wealth was $700 million. But by the time they come to final hearing, it actually doubled in value. And that was purely as a result of the husband's investment strategies. So the judge in that particular case cross-checked overall fairness. So that's important one to note. So that's looking at white again, but awarded the wife $530 million, which was 36% of the overall personal assets. So they departed from equality 
based on the significant special contribution to the marriage and the post-separation accrual. But the judge commented in that case that the husband's financial genius was emphasised and truly vast wealth he had generated. And this case really illustrated very exceptional circumstances in which a, a claim of special contributions might succeed. And there's been various other cases where typically businessmen have argued that their contribution to their business should be taken into account. And most of them are rejected. Uh, most of them ultimately Ultimately, the court are looking at equality and meeting need. But I did just want to give an example of one that was successful. The reality is, is that's not the case for most people that we know. And in a usual divorce, that sort of thing is not going to be relevant. It is a very special individual type of case that would qualify for that. I think that's quite right, isn't it, Amy? And like Amy said, quite often, actually, we get somebody who... It is saying, well, hang on a minute, you know, I've really worked hard for where I am today. And we really have to say it's such a difficult point to prove and factor to, you know, to prove in your favour. And, and the burden is on the person saying that they've made this special contribution. So I think as long as we have in our minds this financial genius, I think that's the best starting point for when we're advising to say, really, you know, is it special in the eyes of the law? I appreciate it's special to you and you've worked extremely hard. So it brings us back to, to you know, most cases we are we are dealing with come back to needs and, and how we can meet everybody's needs. Sometimes we have a, a sharing case where we exceed those needs and then we can look at, at sharing. But these factors all need to be taken into account when looking at that. So just a couple of last points. I hope we haven't gone on too much about this, but it is really important. So when you are getting divorced, if you're getting divorced or know somebody getting divorced, it's really important that they know that just by getting that divorce, which currently the final certificate is known as a decree absolute, but will be known as a final order. So once you've got that, if you haven't looked at the finances or you thought, well, we've agreed it, you know, I've done this, he's done that, we've transferred things into sole names whatever the case may be so we've done it actually no you haven't your financial claims remain open until they are dismissed by the court so just bear that in mind in order to know what what you're looking at then please 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 seek legal advice early when you're looking at starting the divorce probably the best time because we do need to see all the financial information before we can advise anybody we can give general advice like we have today as to the factors that need to be considered but in order to give specific advice we need to know what's in the marital and potentially non-marital pot so to speak so how can we help protect your contributions like I say seek legal advice early once we know what there is we can advise you as to how the impact of these factors may have and also we can draft prenuptial so before the marriage and postnuptial so after the marriage agreements and we can also draft separation agreements. So whilst these aren't officially legally binding in the family court, they do show intention and there are remedies available if some if one party then changes their mind. So please consider that. And yes, that's a lot of information I think we've given there, Amy. Yeah, indeed. So thanks for listening today. We hope you will join us again soon for another episode of The Candid Divorce Lawyer. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Candid Divorce Lawyer podcast, brought to you by Trithowans. To hear more from us, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. You can also follow our Instagram page, at Candid Divorce Lawyer.
This podcast does not constitute legal advice and is for informational purposes only. If you're looking for legal advice, please do not hesitate to get in touch with us via the details in our bio.